0: Good morning, if you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2, where we'll begin this period of our Bible study and this part of our worship. Colossians chapter 2. Thank you so much for being here this morning. It is good to see you and good to be with you. Appreciate the time that we've been able to spend in worship to God. I uh, was asked to announce and to remind uh, the ladies of the congregation that the the ladies' afternoon study will be today at 5 o'clock at the Sims house And uh, Heather will be teaching, I believe that's 2 Corinthians 5, if that's right. So, yes, I got the nod from Heather. So, 2 Corinthians 5. So, I want to remind the ladies about that at the Sims house uh, this afternoon. Colossians chapter 2, I want to begin just by reading in verse 11. Colossians 2 and verse 11, it says, "...in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith... ...and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. All Christian groups teach baptism in one form or another. But many Christian groups de-emphasize its importance. They would say it is merely symbolic. And in response, we have often overemphasized baptism... ...jumping to the other extreme and saying essentially... Baptism is the only important part of what we do to respond to God, the salvation process, or perhaps just the most important. And I want to suggest to you this morning that neither of those extremes is particularly helpful. Whether it's the de-emphasis on baptism or the over-emphasis on baptism, we need clarity here. And we need proper perspective about what this act God has called on us to do really means, and also what it doesn't mean. And you might ask, well, well, why does that matter? The reason that matters is because if we claim that baptism does things it doesn't do, for example, if we come to believe that it is water that saves us, or we come to believe that baptism somehow makes up for everything else we might do after baptism, then suddenly... We will be misleading people and people will be disillusioned to discover that baptism is not what Scripture claims it is. But if we claim it doesn't do what it does, then we'll probably just stop teaching and emphasizing baptism altogether. In fact, we might stop baptizing people. If it's not that big a deal, it's merely symbolic and that is what many in our world have done. So we've got to get this right. I don't want to spend just a few minutes this morning talking about what baptism does and doesn't do. So let's talk about that, and I want you to think as we go through about extremes and where the truth of Scripture lies in between those extremes. First of all, we're going to say what baptism does and what it doesn't do. Baptism does express faith, but baptism doesn't replace faith. So in this text, in Colossians, Paul is talking about the connection between our conversion and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and look at what he says in verse 12, in Colossians 2 and verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So we are back buried with him in baptism, that is, our bodies are submerged in water just as his body was buried in the earth. But now just as he is raised, we are raised, and Paul says specifically, through faith in the powerful working of Of God. We go down into the water because we believe that when we come up out of the water, God will have made us into a different person. We will be raised in new life. There is faith there in God. We get baptized because we believe in Jesus. Baptism expresses our faith. Now, that's pretty clear. I think a great example is when you describe the the baptism of John the Baptist. For those who are unaware, John the Baptist is the one who came before Jesus, telling people that Jesus was going to come and preparing the people for Jesus. And one of the ways he did that was he preached that people needed to repent and get ready for the kingdom of God that was coming. One is coming after me, he said. And one of the ways they prepared for that was by being baptized. That's why he became known as John the Baptist. So doesn't it make sense that the people who John baptized were the people who believed John's message I mean otherwise why would they get baptized right in fact those things are used interchangeably when Jesus asks about the baptism of John listen to what he says the baptism of John from where did it come from heaven or from man and they discussed it these are the the opposition Jews they discussed it among themselves saying if we say from heaven he will say to us why then did you not believe him well how how would you know that they didn't believe John well it would be pretty simple right If you were baptized by John, you believed him. If you weren't baptized by John, you didn't believe him. It's pretty simple, right? In fact, this is said about that same group in Luke 7, 29 and 30. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So... Here, they didn't accept the baptism, and another way of framing that, why then did you not believe him? When we believe something, baptism is the next logical step to express that faith. So, if they didn't submit to the baptism, it's pretty clear they didn't believe, and the lack of faith they had was shown by their refusal to be baptized. Now, we're not as familiar with this process in our day, but in the ancient world, it was pretty clear that when someone accepted something and wanted to be initiated into it, baptism was often a part of that initiation. So to be a disciple, baptism was an expected part of the initiation process. So you have a statement like this in John chapter 4, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Making and baptizing disciples. To be a disciple... One was baptized. That's why Jesus says, when he sends them out, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. In fact, one of the most telling proofs of the connection between faith and baptism, don't worry, I'm going somewhere. One of the most telling proofs between faith and baptism is that when Jews in the early church did not want Gentiles to become Christians, do you know what they did? Do you know how they stopped them? They couldn't possibly stop them from believing, thinking certain things about Jesus. What do they do? Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? What they would do is they wouldn't let them get baptized. Because baptism would mean they're crossing over and they're declaring their faith and they're initiated into Christ. They've become disciples. And so Peter says, I guess we have to quit withholding water. We have to quit stopping them from being baptized. I guess the gates are open. If God accepts these people, we need to accept them too. So baptism does express faith. That is, it is the step we take when we come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and we say, I want to be identified with him. I want his salvation. I want to belong to him. I want to follow him. He is my savior. Baptism expresses that faith. And so we are buried with him in baptism through faith and the powerful working of God. However, baptism does not replace faith. In fact, the way that the Bible paints this is that faith and baptism are intimately tied together. They're impossible to sever. You cannot say, I believe, but I don't believe enough to be baptized. And there is no such thing as a person who is baptized, but baptized without really believing. You see, those things work together. In fact, let me show you that pattern here. This is Acts 8 and verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. That's important, by the way. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Do you notice the pattern? Philip comes and he preaches about Jesus. They hear it, they believe it, and they're baptized. It's just a natural response. Well, if I believe it, what do I do? I get baptized, and then I follow. Both men and women, he says, are baptized. This is an even shorter one, Acts 18, 8. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Baptism, then, doesn't replace faith. It's not as if they say, no, don't worry about believing, just get baptized. Instead, baptism is the next step faith takes. Once we believe, we go and get baptized. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 19. I want to show you this kind of in living color as Paul tries to sort of peel back the layers of a group of people he finds in Acts chapter 19. So here Paul finds some people, they are identified as disciples. They are probably people who had been taught by Apollos. Because at the end of chapter 18, we learn about Apollos who only knew the baptism of John. That is, he only knew a little bit of the message of John the Baptist and did not know the completion of that message in the coming of Jesus. So, here are people who are disciples, but they don't have a full understanding about Jesus. So let's read what happens. Acts 19 and verse 1. It says... And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, past, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." So, I just take this text as him sort of peeling back the layers of common understanding. First, he wants to know, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? I suspect that Paul wanted to give them gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he wants to know, do you already have the Holy Spirit? And they say, and by the way, if you're a preacher and you hear this, it's a scary thing to hear. They say, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, so we got to back up a little bit. All right, into what then were you baptized? Because Matthew 28 says they were baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What were you baptized into if you don't know if there's a Holy Spirit? And then they say, into John's baptism. Aha, now Paul knows where we are. And he says, well, here's the thing about John. John was talking about somebody else who was going to come after him. You need to believe in Jesus. He is the one that you need to even be baptized into. And so... They are baptized again. What's the point here? What this passage shows us is that it matters what we believe when we are baptized. If it was just about baptism, you know, as long as you go down in the water, that's all that matters. Why were these people baptized again? They were baptized again because they needed to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, not just into John's baptism. It matters what we believe. What do we think is happening when we are baptized? Who are we trusting for our salvation? Why are we doing this? And Paul wants their baptism to be from faith. He wants it to express faith, but he does not think that it replaces faith. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to have a perfect or complete understanding before we can get baptized and for it to count. It does mean, though, that at its heart, at its core, we have to be baptized believing that Jesus is God's Son and Messiah. And with that faith expressed in baptism, there is saving power. But that baptism, absent that faith, cannot be replaced. So... Let me just draw a couple of conclusions before we move on. I conclude from this that baptizing infants and baptizing unbelievers does no good. And the logic is very simple. An infant cannot believe. And baptism does not replace faith. Baptism is not some kind of magic formula that anyone you put in the water is saved regardless of their intent or will. Instead, baptism is pictured in Scripture as an expression of faith. I believe this, so I obey it. I also conclude from this that it is not just about powerful water as if the water is somehow holy. Sometimes I will joke, and people will joke because when I baptize people, sometimes I get wet, and I'll joke about my holy arm Because the arm gets wet a lot. Sometimes other parts of my body. It's always a joke. Water is water. The power is not in water. The power is in God. And yet there is a power to it. There is a power beyond merely expressing faith. So let me also say this and we'll move on. There is nothing in these texts. That say we are saved by faith only. But they do clearly say that we are saved by faith. We also have to emphasize that baptism is an outward expression of an inward faith. However, it is not merely an outward expression of an inward faith. There is power beyond expressing faith. So let's talk about what that is. The second thing I want us to see is that baptism does ask God for a clear conscience, but baptism doesn't allow us to save ourselves. Have you ever thought about the question when New Testament people got baptized, what did they think was happening? What were they thinking about what this process meant for them? I want you to think about that question for these last few minutes of our time. Because I do believe New Testament people wrote down the answer about what they thought was happening and what they believed God was doing when they were baptized. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3. What did they think baptism would do for them? And what does God by inspiration say baptism does? 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be focusing on verse 21. While you're turning there, I will just say to you that this section is where Peter is drawing a comparison to Noah and the ark and the salvation God achieved for Noah and his family through the ark that also had to do with water. And he makes a very strange connection, in my view, between that salvation through water, as in from water, and then the comparison to baptism, which is salvation through water. So 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to Noah and his salvation, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So a couple of things. I want you to notice this passage carefully with me. Verse 21 says, Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Baptism is not... An ordinary bath. And it might look the same as when you get into the water at any other time. But the purpose here is not about cleaning the body. I know that some older versions have a term like the filth of the flesh. And very often, historically, that has been attributed to something else. You know, this is not something that washes away the, the fleshly sin. But that really can't hold water, pardon the pun there, that really can't hold water considering the fact that Paul is told to wash away your sins. So that would leave Paul saying, Paul being told wash away your sins, and Peter saying it doesn't wash away sins. That wouldn't add up. No, instead what we're saying here is baptism is not an ordinary bath. There's something else going on. Well, what is it? Look again at verse 21. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God. Your version might have something like an answer. The better word is a request or an appeal. We are asking. We're asking God not to cleanse our bodies. But to cleanse our consciences. We're asking God for our conscience to be clean. I am sure that one of the reasons you are here this morning. Is because you have found. That you have done things. That made you feel dirty and polluted. That nothing a that your conscience has been violated and you wanted desperately to do something to make yourself feel better and yet you found thing after thing after thing you tried could not do it baptism is about asking God to clear the conscience and so in that way baptism becomes a lot like all the people throughout the gospels who come to Jesus asking for things you remember those people They come on behalf of their servant or their child. They come saying, I need to be cleansed. I need to be healed. You can help me. Have mercy on me. Help me see. These people, they ask and it's given. They seek and they find. They knock and it is open to them. And so we, when we receive and believe this message, we ask God, cleanse me. Sometimes we sing about that. We sing the victory in Jesus song. We talk about how we saw Jesus heal all these people and then we cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. It's that same picture. I see what he can do and I ask him to do it for me. That's what baptism is, asking God for a clear conscience. That's the reason that Paul is told, we'll talk more about this passage in a moment, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Do you notice that part? Calling on his name. Calling on the name of the Lord. That is an old phrase with a long history. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis where men began to call on the name of Jehovah. They asked God for things. They worshiped him. They honored him. And they needed him. We reach out for help. We're asking for something. So Ananias says, Paul, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, and reach out to God. Ask him to cleanse you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Baptism is how we call on the name of the Lord, according to Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. Now, baptism does ask God for a clear conscience, but that does not mean that baptism allows us to save ourselves. And this is where the other part of the extreme comes in. We have to be careful about beginning to think that because we have done something, that we have done something. For example, when Naaman comes to Elisha, asking for help with his leprosy, and Elisha says, go wash seven times in the Jordan River, does Naaman heal himself? When the blind man asks Jesus for healing and Jesus says, go wash in the pool called Sint, And the blind man goes and washes and comes back saying, did the blind man heal himself? That's ridiculous. No amount of washing heals blindness or leprosy. That's the power of God. And yet there is in that always the element of them needing to do something to respond to what God had said. To make the application clear. When we ask God for a clear conscience and we obey what he says to get it. It never means we cleared our own conscience. It means God gave us something. In fact, if you're still open here, 1 Peter three twenty one. look again at it. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is the one who grants it. God is the one that we ask We are raised through faith in the working of God, we read back in Colossians 2. In fact, I want you to turn with me over to Titus chapter 3 really quickly. We're, We're over in this part of the New Testament. Titus chapter 3 makes this same application using a picture of baptism. Titus chapter 3. Titus 3 and verse 4. Titus 3 and verse 4, after describing how desperate our situation was, he says Titus 3:4 but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our father God our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit did you notice that there's a washing of regeneration involved there i believe that's a reference to baptism a washing that gave us new life but did you notice what else he said look at the beginning of verse 5 it says he saved us. We didn't save ourselves. And no matter how many times you get washed, you don't save yourself. That's not what baptism does. Baptism is not now a mechanism by which you can take salvation into your own hands. It is instead the way God says, I will save you. We cannot save ourselves. In fact, he specifies there, not by works of righteousness that we have done, something that we have achieved on our own. Well, you might wonder, why does that need to be said? Why why do we need this point? Well, it's because on one hand, we sometimes get confused. Paul talks a lot about how we're not saved by our works. And some people want to put baptism into the bucket of works that we cannot be saved by. And that causes some trouble with them and how they interpret the rest of the New Testament. But it would mean that baptism is a way we save ourselves. And I want to say very clearly that the, the Bible does not paint baptism as a way we save ourselves ever it's not a work that we do that's a good work of ours it is instead a way that we ask God to save us in spite of our works but on the other hand can I sit over here for just a second and talk about how we sometimes grow to believe we can save ourselves Sometimes we begin to emphasize our own responsibility, our own response to God so much that we forget it is God's love and God's grace that makes salvation possible. We forget that at the end of the day, if God didn't reach out to us by sending his son, we would have no hope. We would be without God in the world. This is all according to God's grace and love. And when the whole process is done, and we've done everything that God calls on us to do, we're still unprofitable servants. We are still merely the objects of his grace and love. We have done nothing special. It is God who gets the glory. Sometimes we forget that it is God who answers our appeals. We need balance here to see what baptism does not do. What the Bible does is picture baptism as a passive act. I know that sounds strange, a passive act. But a passive act where we cry out to God for salvation. We happily obey and submit to God. But when we have done it, we have not done a great thing. God has done a great thing for us. The third thing I want us to see is that baptism does wash away sin. But baptism doesn't prevent future sin. Let's go to Acts chapter 22. Acts 22. We'll work out of this passage for a moment. Acts chapter 22. Brother Sonny mentioned about Saul seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus and being converted. This is how Ananias was sent by Jesus to teach Paul and tell him what happens next. And before any of the work is going to get started, he has something that he needs to deal with. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. It says, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Rise and be baptized. Why are you waiting? Get up, take care of it, wash away your sins, calling on His name. Baptism is the point at which sins are washed away as we put our faith in Jesus and as we turn away from those sins. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about that picture washing away sins. We think about washing all the time. We do washing all the time. I asked Josie last night as we were working on her lesson why, why do we wash things? To make them clean. That's what washing does. And it takes all the pictures of washing for cleansing and says, This is now what God is doing for your spirit, for your soul. That picture is everywhere in Scripture. That picture is there with the purification rules of the Jews and the priests. Pilate takes water and tries to wash his hands. And do you know what he says? I am innocent. Of this man's blood. Now, it doesn't work that way, but he wants it to. Jesus does this with feet. He washes the disciples' feet. You remember what he says? The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Washing makes clean. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Washed, sprinkled, clean. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I asked earlier, what, what did New Testament people think was happening when they got baptized? I don't think that's a hard question to answer. They thought they were asking God to cleanse their conscience and their souls from impurity. They thought they were going to be clean again. I remember distinctly preaching at a county jail in Texas. And at the end of my sermon, I had some people that wanted to be baptized. And we gathered up a little group of them. Some from another place that had come. They all wanted to be baptized and... And there was a preacher from a denomination who was there with me. And he asked these men, men who who weren't Bible scholars and didn't have great knowledge of what was going on, they said, well, why do you want to be baptized? And one of the men spoke up and he said, just want to be right with God. Just want to be clean. Of course, that man then began to tell him, no, 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 that's not why you get baptized. And my jaw dropped. That's what the Bible said. The Bible makes the connection between washing and cleansing, between baptism and washing away sins. So that's what baptism does. But I want to talk for just a moment about this idea. Baptism doesn't prevent future sin. It doesn't say that we're going to be washed so thoroughly that it would be impossible for us to do wrong again and become impure again. Instead, what baptism is, it's intended to be the beginning of a new life. But it does not ensure the new life. Instead, it is intended to be motivation not to go back to the things that polluted us before. We have been given a new lease on life. We've been given purity and cleanliness. And so now, what do we do? Let's go real quickly to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, where Paul takes this on and talks about baptism in this connection. Romans chapter 6, he says, he's answering the question, can we just keep sinning? Since God has enough grace, since God can easily forgive, can we just keep sinning and God keep forgiving? And of course he says, absolutely not. Romans 6 and verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The idea there is not just that, hey, things are good now where they weren't before. It is instead there is a new path now. I'm a new person now. I have new instructions. I have a new way to go. And so he says in verse 12 of Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey It's passions. Paul says, if you've been baptized, you need to stop sinning. Don't let sin reign. Because baptism doesn't prevent future sin. Instead, baptism says, now you live up to the new life you've been given. The problem here is a variation on the old once saved, always saved idea. I think it's very easy for us to say, you know, We don't believe once saved, always saved. We can fall away from the Lord, and that is certainly true biblically. And yet, it's very easy for us to get into a a lackadaisical spiritual mindset where we spend long years just sort of drifting, not really trying to develop the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, not really making changes and growing, not really spiritually passionate. And if someone questions us about it, what will we say? Hey, leave me alone, I've been baptized. And we rely on some act long ago as if that's just a a get-out-of-jail-free card from then on. That's not what Paul says. Paul says there should be a change and a growth that continues from now forward. That's what baptism does. Forgiveness in baptism is real. We really do wash away sin. But the expectation is that we make new resolutions about sin. Baptism should change us, but it doesn't change us automatically. So I hope this helps. I want to take just this last couple of minutes and ask the question, well, what what do we take away from that? I understand that I'm I'm speaking to a group of people who have mostly been baptized. If you haven't, I hope you'll think very seriously about the things that we've studied and God's expectations for you. But for those of us who have, I mean, why study this? Why worry about it? And I want you to have some ideas of why this should matter. First of all, we should be grateful. We should be grateful that God has brought salvation down to us and made it available to all people so that we can do a simple act in obedient faith to Him and know that He hears us and receives us and that He rejoices at us coming. I think sometimes we just pass right by that. How easy God has made it for us to give our lives over to him. Be grateful for that. Second, be eager and willing to obey. When I think of the people who come to Jesus in desperate need asking, Lord, help me. You can heal me. Have mercy on me. And they see their great need and they see Jesus' great power and they beg. They do not say, oh, Jesus, why do I have to go wash in that pool? Oh, did you spit on that? These are people who understand their need and are willing to do anything. And it seems to me that sometimes we drink more from the well of our culture, which tells us you can be healed if it's in a way that you like, doing things that you like, instead of coming eager and willing to do whatever our Lord teaches us. And when we talk to others about the gospel, we need to emphasize to them, Eagerness and willingness to obey all God says. We need to boldly stand up for what has been revealed. Sometimes people just ignore the the teaching of the Bible on baptism. That's a tragedy to me. Sometimes people just say it's not that big a deal when God says it is. That should bother us. And we have to be willing to say I'm going to teach this. I'm going to stand up for this. I'm going to say something about this. I'm going to encourage people about this. But the last thing, and perhaps the most important thing, refuse to let sin reign in our bodies. Something has happened to us. We've been bought out of our sins. We've been changed. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. Is that change going on in your life? Can you see the shift? Can you see the growth? Or are you back to old ways? Don't let sin reign in your bodies. Let there be a change so that you know it and other people see it. And they know that God is real because they see him at work in you. Thank God for baptism. But more than that, thank God for the sacrifice that makes it meaningful to us. If you need to make changes this morning, if you need to come and to bury yourself with him in baptism, have your sins washed away. Or if there is any need that you have, this time is for you. Please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.